ESPN LA 710. This is ESPN LA 710. I'm Laferne Cusack. For more information and for podcasts or if you have questions, please log on to ESPNLA.com and go to the experience page and or check me out on Twitter at Laferne Cusack. Today we're talking art. Risky Forever. He is an artist, visionary, and icon who is responsible for the most recognizable art in hip-hop history and its culture. When you see the album cover art for Tupac's All Eyes on Me, Machiavelli, Nate Dogg's G-Funk Classic Volumes 1 and 2, Snoop Dogg's The Dog Father, and other Death Row record classics, you're looking at the portfolio of a man raised in Compton. He wrote the new book, Art Is My Life, The Street, Tupac, Death Row Records, and Now. Risky, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Tell us how you got started creating iconic hip-hop images. Well, actually, it's a long story, but actually, I was born in Torrance, but I spent most of my life in Compton. I was raised in Compton, and my career started off tagging. I actually, I actually started tagging, but it first started with sitting on my auntie's lap when I was a little kid, looking at her draw. And from watching her draw from sitting in her lap, I always wanted to be an artist. So the more I grew up, the more the more I grew up and started seeing more and more different artists is, is, is how I basically got into my art career. And that took me from watching her be an artist. It took me from being a visual artist and then into an airbrush artist. I mainly did a lot of work around Compton working at the Compton Swap Me Airbrush and T-shirts. She encouraged you to create, to be the artist that you are. Yeah, actually she did. And it's funny because today, to this day, she doesn't draw anymore, but she always says, you turned out to be great. But like I said, when I was growing up, I used to sit on her lap and just watch her draw all the time. And I, I knew from watching my aunt that I, it was just something that I wanted to do. So you took airbrushing T-shirts to the next level. Yes, I took it to the next level. Really, I happened to be at the right place at the right time, and that's basically how I landed my career. That really doesn't happen for everybody, but what I try to do is encourage other artists that come from the city to let them know that, you know, everything is possible because what happened for me is it's possible for the next person. Absolutely. So with this airbrushing, you started your own little business. Yeah, actually, I started out working for my friend Cliff, and the company swapped me in the late 80s and the early 90s. But then when I left working with him, I started being like my own artist. I would like airbrush a lot of stuff at home. Um, when I was going to high school, everybody wanted me to airbrush stuff for like football games and stuff like that on Friday night. So I would always, I would always airbrush for them and take them to school and they would come to my house and get airbrushed. It was like, it was, that was like my little gig on the side at home. So I didn't never, I had never had any worries other than going out buying art supplies. <laughs> that was the thing is like, uh, like my friends, they, they threw craps in college to get money, but you airbrushed for money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so tell us the difference or like the technique in, you know, going from drawing to airbrushing. How, how was that transition? You know what? It was kind of difficult at first because I had to learn a lot of hand and eye coordination, and I had to be able to understand the width, how how to make an airbrush stream wider, and how to make it thinner. So, I mean, the transition took me maybe about 
a month or so to learn. Back then, I had a drawing group. And it was like five or six of us in the drawing group. And my friend, Faze One, his mom spoiled him, bought him everything. So he was the first person <laughs> in the group that had an airbrush. So everybody oh, wow. would go to Faze's, Faze's house after school to try to learn how to airbrush on this double-action airbrush with him at the school. And I was the only one that really picked it up because even to this day, He's not even an airbrush artist. He's a photographer. <laughs> so I'm the only one, you know what I mean? I'm the only one that stuck with it. But all five of us learned how to airbrush off one airbrush. Wow. That's awesome. You were young, and people noticed that you had this beautiful talent to create. Can you talk about your mentors or how you just developed that talent to, you know, stick with it? Yeah, it's, it, you know, I had. I had a lot of virtual mentors, like growing up, I had a regular style, like, but once I saw B Street, I saw Rainbow from B Street. I don't know too many people know about B Street because I was back in the 80s. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was an artist named Rainbow. And growing up, I wanted to be like Rainbow. So I transitioned from being a regular artist into that hip hop type of artist. And then with watching Rainbow, I started watching MTV, and I I came across the Shirt Kings. One of my boys, Faye, from the original Shirt Kings out here in New York, I ran across him, and I started looking at their styles, and I started, like, doing more and more, like, on a hip-hop scene just from watching them. They were, like, basically, like, my mentors without even knowing it. Wow. And you being the oldest child, did you feel any pressure of helping your family, you know, financially through your art? During the time when my career started really taking off of the ground, like I was able to help certain pe certain members of my family. And I mean, I felt really good about it because I was doing something that I liked to do and I was able to help out my family and able to like buy my mom certain things that I wanted her to have, you know, for me. So that was, that was, that was something really good about it. Yeah. Take us through where you ended up at Death Row Records. Let me see. Tupac had just gotten out of prison. He was shooting a video at the Compton Swap Me when the Compton Swap Me was like popping back then. He was shooting a video for California Love there. And Shook had actually saw some of my work from one of my relatives. Her name was Gina. She had saw some of some of my work from from him. Mm -hmm. And at that time, my boy Cliff he had moved out of the Compton Swap Me, and I was working with him for a while at the at the Bullets Town Center that was right across the street from the Compton Swap Me. And he had me run an errand for him, and I ended up going way to Orange County to pick up some art supplies for him. But before I left, I noticed that there were a lot of car carriers carrying a lot of 6'4 Chevys, different cars on the car carrier. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering, like, wow, what is going on with this? But I, I never had an idea what was going to happen with that. So once I had left to run, run the errand to Orange County and I, and I had come back from Orange County and I parked the car, it was groves of people outside standing around. And I saw a couple of my homies from the neighborhood, and I asked them, like, what, what's going on over there? And they were telling me that Tupac was over there at the Compton Squad me shooting a video, and Suge Knight was over there also. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that I thought to myself was, 
today's the day. I got to try to get over there and go talk to Suge and see if I can get on because that was one of my biggest dreams to be able to drop a Death Row Records after I had saw, you know, a couple of other artists like my friend Joe Cool, who did the original artwork for the Doggy Style album, and my boy Hen Dog, rest in peace, who had did the original artwork for the Dog Food album. I wanted to be a part of Death Row Records. So what I did was I ran upstairs, I gave my friend his supplies, and I went across the street, and I saw Suge talking to, like, it was like a line of people waiting to talk to him. So I had thought to myself, I'm going to wait until he gets to the last person. I don't care how long it's going to take me. I'm going to wait because if I try to get in front of him and mm-hmm. talk to him and it's, line, it's still people behind me, he's going to talk to me as fast as he can in order to get to the next person. Right. So what I did was you were I, waited about, <laughs> you were- I, I waited about two hours and I finally got the chance to talk to Suge. I caught him and I told him that, you know, he had saw my portfolio and that I really wanted to work for him. And basically he told me, the next thing he told me was, do I have the same book that he saw with me? And at that time, I didn't have the book with me. So I had, I begged him, I pleaded him. I'm like, you're not going nowhere. He said, go get the book and come back. And I was like, you're not going nowhere, are you? He was like, no, <laughs> go get the book and come back, little homie. I'm going to be right here. <laughs> so I took off running across the street. I got my portfolio and I walked right back to Suge and I walked straight up to him and I said, here's my portfolio. So he told me to come walk with him. Wow. So I walked with him and we walked up to the side of a cargo van and he tapped on the door and the door opened and Tupac was sitting in the inside. And he told Tupac, I want you to see some of the little homies work from the neighborhood. I want you to look at his work and I want you to see if there's something we could do. So Tupac got out of the van. He shook my hand. He started looking at my portfolio and he started telling me that I was really good and he wanted me to work on, you know, different projects for him. The first project that they wanted me to work on was something for America's Most Wanted, but it didn't happen that way. I ended up working on an insert with my boy Hendog for uh, the first double CD, which was uh, All Eyes on Me. The first double rap CD, which was All Eyes on Me. So that was my first project with Death Row Records. Uh, that is that is a great story. When you took your portfolio to Tupac, what was happening around you in the city? What was happening around me at that time, it was just a lot of people around. Everybody wanted to, you know, get a glimpse of Tupac because, uh, you know, he had just gotten out of jail. You know, people that were from Compton were, weren't weren't actually, they were actually in actual awe because no one had really ever got the chance or really never thought that they would be able to see Tupac right smack dab in the middle of Compton. And at that time, I mean, Dr. Dre was right there. Suge was there. They were shooting a video. So it was just everybody, like everybody that had come out just to be able to see that. I mean, that was historic at that time. Right. It wasn't an everyday experience. No, it wasn't an everyday experience. I mean, that was like some those death row videos were like some of the first videos to actually ever come to my side of conference. What happened with, like, the people around you? What were they saying that they knew that you had this chance to speak with, you know, Suge Knight and Tupac, and you possibly have this great opportunity? What were your friends saying? All my friends were happy, you know. My friends were just like, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. It's a, it's, it's like it's finally your time that somebody finally noticed you for the talent that you have. So, I mean, a lot of my friends, you know, they were pushing me to go ahead. They were happy for me. You know, they, they, 
they just wanted to they was just they just wanted to be around me too at the same time <laughs> where they saw me going you know going for the gusto and then seeing who I was around they all wanted to they all wanted to be around which I didn't have a problem with because they were already around before any of that happened what were some of the challenges that you faced you know what it wasn't really too many challenges that that I that I was actually faced with before I got the opportunity to meet Tupac. I mean, other than, you know, they say starving artists. I mean, at that time I had I had just had a son, so I was still trying to like get my life together, and because I had been involved in so many other things, like I had been. Before everything really had jumped off, I had been out selling drugs and doing all kind of other things. And when my son was born, I said that I wanted to give up all of that because I didn't want him. I didn't want him to not have a father figure around. So I wanted to get my life in order, and I knew that my talent is what was going to help me put my life in order. So that was a challenge within itself because a lot of people are addicted to drugs. But they don't realize the people that are selling the drugs, too, they're also addicted to selling drugs. Mm. So one of my biggest challenges was trying to knock that habit and stick to just straight art because I was so into just getting fast money. And now I was going to have to be like on a on a regular or working for this money. And I and I, and I was I was I was pleased with the outcome because it wasn't like I was just working for just anybody. Right. Right. You you were an entrepreneur. You you made it. You were like okay, this is my talent, this is what I'm going to do. And you had the foundation and the support behind you from your family and friends to, you know, be able to go up to Suge Knight and to Tupac and say, this is me, this is what I can do. A lot of people are in fear. And then they stay in that perpetual, you know, cycle, like you're saying, they're addicted to whatever, and they never break the cycle. You know, uh, when I was growing up, my mom always, my mom and my dad, they always put this in my head. The worst thing a person can say to you is no. A closed mouth will never get fed. So <laughs> if you don't take the opportunity to, to get the outcome for a no, the answer is always going to be a no. Right. So I would always step forward if I knew that I had a dream on doing something. Because, I mean, that was one of my biggest dreams, like walk, walking around my neighborhood. I kept telling myself all the time, I'm going to make it on death row. I'm going to be a part. I don't know what I'm going to do or how I'm going to do it yet, but I'm going to make it happen. Yes. And eventually it happened because I kept I kept that on my mind that I was going to do that. I stayed, I stayed for going on that, and it ended up happening. Yes. What happened next in the story that, you know, led you into this great artistic career? What happened next on the story is, I mean, after I, after I had completed the cover, I completed the insert for the painting for the All Eyes on Me, I wasn't even hired at Death Row right at that time. But you were paid. What? Yeah, I got paid. But it was funny how I got paid because it was like right after I did the drawing for the All Eyes on Me and I went in and I turned in the artwork into Interscope Records at that time because I was Death Row's um, partner company at that time. I went in and I turned in that album artwork and everybody liked the artwork. But one thing that I found out that day, well, actually a couple of days before I turned the artwork in is that the credits and stuff had already been complete for the album. Oh. I, I wouldn't actually... I wouldn't actually get any credit on that album, which really hurt, like, you know? Yeah. But, like, maybe about two weeks later, I kept gunning because I was, like, contracted to do this, but I knew I wanted this job because there was another airbrush artist named Chris Birch that had worked with Death Row Records, and somehow Chris Birch had fell out of the loop. So I kept 
doing different things of doing different portraits. I did a portrait of Suge Knight from the from the '96 Vibe cover. Oh wow! And I sent that with my friend Hen Dog to work. And once Suge saw that, he said, "Yeah, we're gonna hire him. Get him up here." Wow. So once I got up there to meet with Suge, I ended up getting hired. At that time, he paid me. He paid me like twenty five hundred for doing the artwork, doing the artwork for the allies on me. Which today that wasn't really a lot of money, but back then that was a lot of money. Then. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he had paid me. He on top of him paying me to do the all eyes on me cover, he had paid me like I had worked for the company two weeks. So I got almost five grand and I hadn't even started the day at work yet. I was basically, you know, hired off of what I had already done. So that's good. That's great. Cause you yeah, know, that was, that was great. And I mean, like I said, I didn't get credit for that album, but I still, I still got credit for that. album. Yeah. Really. So risky. Tell me about that process. So you go t- through the concept of creating the sketches. How did you reach the point to, uh, you know, the, the final concept? Take me through your process. Okay. When, when I did the artwork for the all eyes on me album, my friend Hendoff, he did kind of all of the sketches, and I just kind of went in and added my own input on it. You know, I took everything that he had given me. I had drew it on a canvas. I took the canvas. I coated everything in shelving paper, and I painted the whole entire painting. So I went through a process of just paint airbrushing everything. It took me maybe about four or five days to do the entire cover, but everything had bits and pieces of me, so... It was like a process of airbrushing, a couple of, I did a little bit of, of hand painting with brushes and stuff like that. So, it, it I mean, it, it was a, it was a, it was a pretty long process mm-hmm. in getting that done. And then for like, all of the other album covers that I worked on, they would basically give me an idea of what they wanted. I would come up with the sketches. I would show them the sketches, and when we had a meeting for whatever album was coming out, they would look at the sketches. They would tell me, hey, I like this. I don't like that. Take this out. Let's move it around. I would come back, show them another sketch after that. Once I showed them a sketch after that, they would say, okay, let's get it done. I would paint it up. Once I got it painted on canvas and I showed them, it was a wrap. It was a done deal. And how did you go about having that as your own and not anyone stealing, you know, your work? How do you... How did you do you that? You know, I, I find everything. And I after after the All Eyes on Me album, I learned a lot. But after that album, I started getting official album credits for everything that I worked on with Death Row Records. So in every album, my name is listed as artist, illustrator. Now, what was your feeling um, about Suge Knight? I, I know there's a lot of stories of, you know, he, he takes people's work and makes it his own. Did you have any thoughts of you know, speaking with him business-wise? I didn't really, you know, get to really talk to him business-wise. Like, when I was working there, I didn't really know all of the things that I know now. Yeah, okay. A, a lot of a lot of my friends that we all went to, you know, we all worked at Death Row Records. We like to consider ourselves by saying we went to Death Row University. <laughs> so now we know better on different <laughs> situations. <laughs> See, at that time, I was still a youngster, so I wasn't aware of copywriting, trademarking, and all of these different things. So now, 20 years later, I'm starting to find out about a lot of stuff, but I felt like I worked there. 
I was getting paid. I was truly, I was really getting paid because I remember one week I made almost twenty five grand one week just doing three pieces of art. Wow. So. I really don't have really anything to complain about. And there wasn't really anything like when it came to like business wise and me sitting down with Shub or talking to him about doing artwork. It wasn't nothing that I felt like I had to keep pressing the issue with him for because I was getting my money back then. Right, right. Um, and I'm going to give a what's up to Tony Best for introducing me to you. Uh, he was one of your former colleagues at Death Row Records, and he was like, oh, my God, I have this amazing guy. You know, you know, he... Tony, he <laughs> Tony was one of the first people I saw on my first day of work. He wow. was the receptionist then. Wow. Yeah. And, I mean, he he was a real good guy. You know what I mean? He worked there for a while, you mm -hmm. know, until I, he left. I'm not sure how he left, but I'm, I'm thinking, I think he went to Aftermath, but... Tony was a real good guy. He came, matter of fact, he came out to, you know, to my collaboration with Hall of Fame, and that's how we reconnected. He had been hitting me up on Instagram a lot, and that's how we basically reconnected. But, I mean, Tony's a good guy. Yeah, he's he's awesome. He was telling me, you know, that you were one of the people at Death Row Records that had it together, and you were really great at your job. And he could like go to you, and he knew things would be okay because you were, yeah, you were I, that man. I, 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 I'm me. I've always been the same person. I've always been approachable. And I, I mean, I'm a real cool down to earth guy. You know what I mean? I never felt like, you know, just because I was drawing these albums and millions of people were seeing the work, like I was never approachable. I thought I was better than somebody. That was, that's never been me. Mm -hmm. So talk about the experience of creating this piece of art that's going to live on forever and ever versus what it is today. I mean, what it is today, I really don't even see that much creativity i mean when 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 hip-hop came about i mean the culture was art music dance and now i mean the culture is not even the same a lot of people you know they go take a picture they want to do this they want to do that but it's not really as artfully minded and well-rounded as how it used to be in the, in, in when hip-hop first took off i mean I've had, you know, few artists, you know, want me to do album cover work for them once they find out who I am. But I mean, <laughs> and what I've done, because once a lot, once a lot of people, they really realized that, you know, I was the one that was responsible for the Tupac Machiavelli album and they catch wind of who I am. They want me to do some artwork for them. But I mean, mm -hmm. just looking at how, how everything is going right now, I just, I don't really feel like it's really as creative as it was back in the day. I mean, people not people not really doing creative stuff. They everybody's doing the same thing. Mm. Right. Afraid of taking the chance or the risk. Yeah, it's afraid of taking the risk, and then some of them, some people don't want to pay for original artwork. You know what I mean? Right. Oh yeah. So. It's it's uh. What's that saying? You know, you can not pay a lot and get what you deserve, or you can pay for the work and have it be great. Do you want something average, or do you want something Machiavelli? Yeah, see, I tell people all the time, like, if you want something custom, you have to pay for it. You know what I mean? <laughs> when, you, when you walk in the mall and you see a pair of shoes, they've made thousands of pair of those shoes. they made thousands of them. So mm -hmm. when you buy that shoe, you're like comics. 
because everybody, you can't go nowhere and then one person be like, oh, I, I'm the only person with this. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're like, we're basically common because we're wearing something that they made for us like we're robots. Right. Like, you know what I mean? It's like this one shoe is being sold so many thousands of times, but you can't really be like, I'm the only person with this. Yeah. So when you go out and you get something customly made just for you, you know you're the only person with that. Mm-hmm. So you have to be willing to pay for anything that establishes you as a superior person to the next person who will be a common person. You have to be ready to pay for that. Yes, absolutely. And a lot of people are are not like that. They're like, oh, I got this name brand. Well, yeah, you have the name brand, but what? What is it? Is that really art? You know, I'm not even really up on I'm, me, I'm just a regular guy. Back then, I wanted to be the $300 Laguna pants, the $500 BB Simon belt, the $100 T-shirts. I, I'm not even into that no more. You feel me? I'm into yeah. what makes me stand out amongst everybody else. I mean, because once you sit up and you go pay $500 or $300 for that, I, one day one day I happened to be going through a storage that I had, and I ran across some $500 jeans that I paid for, and I said, wow. they're not even worth that no more. <laughs> I could have put that money in the bank and been sitting up on some equity right now. You know, you know what I mean? Like, I'm I'm putting this, just like Kanye say, we go out and we buy the finest, the finest things just to be like, you ain't up on this. Like, I don't, mm-hmm. what? I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to impress you or nobody else. All I need to do is impress myself. Right, right. But that's the, that's what a lot of people are doing. They're like, oh, well, you know, you're keeping up with the Joneses. I have this and that. Well, I'm not, I'm, hey, I rather let the Joneses pass me by. I'm not trying to keep <laughs> up with them. You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm more into what makes me feel good or what makes me stand out. I don't want to be like everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of that and getting into the business and all of that, a lot of young people that are pursuing a career in art or, you know, athletics or whatever, what does it take for you to stand out instead of just being, like you said, just part of the crowd? You have to take the risk. You have to take the risk to stand in line for two hours to meet Suge Knight, to, you know, meet Tupac. You have to take the risk. Yeah, I tell I tell people, I tell a lot of artists, first of all, be yourself. Use your own creativity. Use use what you your everybody everybody is here and we all have a different frame of thought. Mm-hmm. Nobody is the same. If we were all the same, this world would be so boring. <laughs> right. <laughs> everybody has their own frame of thought. They they see everybody sees sees things a lot different mm-hmm. i mean we could be looking at the same red trash can but you might have a different perspective on it than what i might have right you might see beauty in it and i might just see a red trash can yeah everybody has to use their own creative thought and not count on what they think about what somebody else thinks about you know what i mean they have to use their own mind right so i try to tell a lot of artists do you first and foremost mm-hmm. do you that's what may, will make you stand out against anybody else is that you have a different take on it. Right. Have you ever been in a situation where, you know, you're hired to create a, a piece of artwork and you were limited within, you know, what you were able to produce because of that, I don't know, their direction or lack of? 
sometimes it does, it does get like that. I mean, somebody might. I just had a guy who brought me a painting a couple of weeks ago. I mean, he gave me a little creative control over it, but not too much creative control. He wanted he wanted his painting to be a certain way, mm-hmm. and I had to stick with that, even though I feel like I might want to add this or I might want to add that. But even though I'm the artist, somebody's paying me for for work, so I have to, you know, provide them with what they want in order for me to be able to get paid for it. Right, but how so I can recommend I can recommend to somebody. Oh, it might look better like this, but a lot of times when people people know what they want, and I just got to stick with that. I can only get really creative on what I do for myself. Oh, okay. So, but how do you not compromise your talent? I mean, I never compromise my talent. I mean, everything that I do, I always make it as great as I would like for it to be. Mm-hmm. Whether it is somebody else's frame of mind or they're not allowing me to add it, it's still going to always be the best. I'm not going to never put out anything I'm not satisfied with. Yes, yeah. This is ESPN LA, The Experience. I'm Laferne Cusack speaking with Risky Forever. He has a book out, Art is my life, the streets, Tupac, Death Row Records, and now. And as you know, he's one of the most brilliant artists, visionaries, and icons who is responsible for the most recognizable art in hip-hop history and its culture. Um, You talked about Kanye. He talks a lot about art and being himself. What are your thoughts on, you know, some of his art covers and, and what he creates? I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to take anything from Kanye. I feel like he's a dope artist. I really do. But I feel like some of the concepts that he has, I mean, he's getting those concepts from someone else and he's recreating them in his own image. I feel like when a person is really an artist, they step out and they create their own concepts and they leave those concepts for somebody to recreate off of their ideas. Have you seen your artwork reproduced by other people? Like, I've seen my artwork in numerous places. I've seen so many people draw my album covers and, and put their own creativity to it. I mean, I feel like I feel like I'm one of if if not for me and Joe Cool, I feel like we are two, we are the two last originators of real album cover work because of the the accomplish the legendary accomplishments that he and I have in this field, like. Every day there's somebody else out there reproducing what me and Joe Cool have done. Mm. I mean, I'm not I'm not mad at him at all. I'm glad, like I just said, a lot of artwork that Kanye does, you know, he's recreating what somebody else did in his own frame of mind. Mm-hmm. So I'm not mad that I have people recreating the things that I have done in their own frame of mind. <laughs> that makes me feel good. Yeah. That that I'm that that people are acknowledging the work that I've done like that. Yeah. That you've inspired other people to create, you know. They're like, Oh, how did he do that? You know, you see the yeah, Machiavelli. You know what? Mm-hmm. Just my Instagram, just alone since people have been figuring me out on Instagram, I have I have umpteen messages with a lot of people that have that are going on there and they're actually seeing all of the album covers that I've done and they're saying, Wow, you're the guy that did this. I remember trying to draw this when I was a kid. Yeah. I remember putting this on my peachy folder. I remember this. <laughs> it's like it's, it's 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 crazy for me to be able to see that you're the person that really really did this, man. Much respect, bro. 
And it's like, you know, that makes that makes me feel good because I like to tell people when you're inside of the bubble, mm-hmm. which when I was at Death Row Records, I was inside of the bubble. You really don't get the opportunity to see what people think about anything that you're doing from the outside of the bubble. Mm-hmm. And back then, we didn't have social media. We didn't have cell phones with cameras. We didn't have Twitter. We didn't have Instagram. <laughs> we didn't have Facebook. We didn't have MySpace. You know what I mean? We didn't yeah. even have Windows. We had the black screen computers with the green lettering. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so I never really got the opportunity to really see what people really thought about my work. And I never felt like I had fans. I always felt like I had supporters. Uh-huh. So, it's, it's taken me almost 20 years for people to really realize that I'm those covers and really getting the great feedback. And I feel good that those albums are legendary to where even though it's been 20 years past mm-hmm. that I'm actually seeing that people will grew up off of these albums and they really appreciated the work that yes. I've done. Yes, yes. And that's great. Yeah, I was going through your Instagram. I'm like, wow, this is so beautiful. This is like, this needs to be in a museum. You know what? I, I'm, I'm working on it. That's one of the reasons why I'm out here in New York is to get my book around out here and try to make me a few connections because, I mean, I want to see my work in galleries now. That's my next, that's the next phase of my life is that, mm-hmm. you know, I saw my work on TV. I saw it on the news. I saw it on the big screen. But I want to see, I've never had a gallery show. And that's that's one of the next things that I'm working on. I want to have a gallery show. Oh, yeah, yeah. That would be awesome. I would go. Now, I'm going through your book, and, you know, you have the Machiavelli cover here. Talk about the day when you you were given the assignment to create Tupac on a cross. You know what? That day seems like yesterday. I mean, <laughs> we were at... It, I mean, Laverne, it's like there's never a day that goes by that you don't just... You might be sitting still and you just think back to that day. Yes. Yep. I mean, it's that that history is just incredible. I mean, I'm just so blessed that I was able to be a part of that, even though the outcome wasn't all that great. But, I mean, one day I happened to be, we were at 9171 Wilshire. I happened to be in my, you know, in my little cubicle in the back of the, back of the entire office back then. And the president at that time of Death Row Records, Norris Anderson, he happened to call for me, and he wanted me to come into his office. So I went into his office, and he basically told me, Suge just called. He just got off the phone. Like, I got, we got something that we need you to do. It's crazy, but we need you to do it. Like, I was like, what? You know, I never even got the opportunity to think it was crazy before somebody else was telling me it was crazy. <laughs> right. So I was like, what? And they were like, Tupac wants you to draw him on the cross. And I was like, What? Wow. That's crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> like, wow. Right. Are you serious? He wanted me to draw Tupac on the cross. He told me that I had less than a few hours to come up with a mock up cover because we were having a big we were having a big office meeting at Gladstones in Malibu that night. All of this is stuff that I wrote about in my book. Mm-hmm. So I went back there and I put together a mock up cover. At that time, I wasn't really professional with it. I was still having ghetto tendencies. So <laughs> I took this artwork that I did, I put it together, and I folded it up to four squares and put it in my back pocket, and I took it to the meeting with me. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I 
after the meeting, I went to Suge, and he was like, you got that artwork for me? And I showed him the artwork, and he said, oh, this is it. Oh, wow. Get started on this. I need you to get started on this as soon as possible. So once I started on it, maybe about, I think at that time, Tupac was either shooting Gridlock or gang-related at that time. I don't know which movie it was he was shooting, so he wasn't at the meet. But three days later, I had to go to Can-Am Studios to show Tupac what I had come up with. And he looked at it. He liked it. He gave his... He gave his... He, he gave me pointers on what he wanted me to do, what else he wanted me to do it to. He added his creativity mm-hmm. into it. I took it back to the office got it finished. Once I had gotten it done, I turned it into the graphics department. They came back and brought me two two photos, because one of them was with the back cover artwork that he wanted done, and one was the front cover artwork, and they had wanted me. They bought me these two photos. Suge's assistant, Roy Tesfai, had told me, hey, we need you to take these two photos down to Tupac at, on Wilshire, because he stayed in the Wilshire house at that time. We need you to take these to him to see if he approves of them. And we need you to take them right now. Mm. So my friend Janella, she drove me down there. Janella, she was a choreographer. She's, she's, I mean, she's been working with everybody, Puffy to Beyonce to, she's done some choreography where she worked with uh, Blackstreet. She's done some of everything. She was like, that was my buddy in the office and she drove me down. Mm. So I went and I met with Tupac and I showed him that cover art. And I mean, actually, this was September the 6th, 1996, when I showed him this artwork. And he was pleased with it. At that time, right before I showed him that artwork, Death Row had just given me a budget of like $5,000 to go out and buy all of the canvases and paint that I needed because they were getting ready to give me an art show because I was actually going to have an art show with Death Row Records. I was going to be the first visual artist from Death Row. And at that time, Tupac had told me, he was so happy with the album, he told me, like, yo, I want you to start painting stuff in my house, and you know I'm getting ready to host this art show for you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, he was getting ready to host this art show for me. And he kept telling me, like, I'm going to get you on, start painting stuff for the house. Like, let's work on it. When we come back from Vegas, we're going to get it going. And the next day, he got shot in Las Vegas, and he never made it back. Dang. I watched those dreams crumble, but, I mean, I couldn't be a selfish person because, I mean, he lost his life, and I was still here. Yeah. Can you describe that time when you heard that he was shot? I was out there in Vegas at that time because I worked worked at the office, and they sent us out there to work at Club 662 that night. And we had heard rumors about it, but nothing was, everything was speculation at that time because everybody was just talking about what they heard. Nobody had actually said that this is what they had saw. So after the fight, I mean, everybody was at the club. Run DMC performed that night. Craig Mack was there. There was a lot of people in the house. You know, Suge and Tupac never showed up. But, I, you know, everybody that worked for the worked at the office and was on staff didn't really think anything about that because... If Suge said he was going to be somewhere at 12 o'clock, he wasn't going to be there until 3 or 4 o'clock. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So we kind of we didn't know what to think because, like, the club went on that entire night, that entire night, and they never showed up. Mm. 
And it wasn't until I had gotten back into my hotel room and turned on the television and started looking at the news and it was on every channel where that happened. Yeah. And that was the first time I had actually saw what had went down that night. Can you describe the climate within Death Row Records that led up to that? I don't really know what type of environment it was at that time because when Suge and Tupac were them, they had their own entourage and they were doing their own thing. I was with staff members, and at that at that time, I guess when the fight had taken place, we were in. I was in the MGM ground. Grand. I was gambling at the tables, and I remember them passing by, and we saw them passing by, but we didn't know what happened. So I don't know. I can't really say what the how the tension was right. or how the environment was at that time because I was I wasn't aware of what was going on. You were busy doing creating your artwork, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, at that time, I was hanging out in Vegas when everything happened. I was hanging out in Vegas before I knew I had to work at six six two that night. Oh, I didn't go to the fight. They all went to the fight, but I was hanging out at the MGM Grand. Me and my friend Greg at that time, we were gambling at the tables, and they happened to just pass by us, and we didn't, we couldn't leave the tables with money down. Right. So they kept going, and we we stayed where we stayed at because mm-hmm. we knew that we were we were finna get have to get ready for work. Right. So I mean, when you when you're at death row and you work at death row and you see them, I mean, you really don't move like everybody else. They're fascinated, but we work with them. They they like family, so whatever they do, okay, they they go on that way. All right, that's cool. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like that for us. And one thing that Shug always kept on our mind, he always stayed on our head about was, you're not at work to be a groupie. Mm-hmm. Everybody around you is is like your family, so you look at them like family. You don't look at them like a celebrity. Yes. Yeah. So he, that was his main thing. We don't come to work for groupie stuff. We don't do that. <laughs> right. That's that's great, though, right? Like, that's like, you're not the fan. You can be a fan, but you're not the fan. We're here yeah, to... You can be a fan, but not working here. <laughs> <laughs> you can be. You can definitely be a fan on the outside of the bubble. It's like I said, you on the inside of the bubble or you want to be on the outside of the bubble. And we were on the inside of the bubble, so... We didn't look, like I said, we didn't look at everybody like a celebrity because at any time you could go talk to them or they might be coming to sit in your office to talk to you about something. So to us, they were family. They were regular people to us. Yeah. And what happened after his death and what was going on? I mean, on? After, Pac, after Pac died, I mean, the album, the Machiavelli album still came out. But, I mean, just Death Row just wasn't the same anymore. Should went to jail. I mean, so many people were coming in, so many people were leaving. The atmosphere just wasn't the same. It just, every, the whole morale just dropped. It was like, we went from having all happy times to where the whole morale just dropped. Um, Yeah, it it was a very, it was a very difficult time. I mean, we went from, even though sometimes we would be at work unhappy because we wanted to go home. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, you could be at work and you could be so cool at work. And then when it's, when it's almost seven o'clock, you happy as I don't know what. And you still call and say, we got to have a meeting. You're like, you feeling like, oh, my uh, God, man, I'm ready to go home. But <laughs> that feeling of, like, I really don't want to go to work was every day. It changed from only getting ready to have a meeting when it's time to go home to that feeling every day. Like, what are we actually doing here? We didn't have any product, projects coming like how they were coming. We did a lot of sitting around. Wondering what was going to happen. I mean, it was, those were some very hard times at the end. Yeah. And what got you through it? 
I actually didn't get through it. It was like, I don't know. It's really hard to explain. It, it really is. It was like, you know, I, I had Dad come through with a project, and I had Nate Dog wanted me to work on his artwork, which Nate Dog ended up leaving Death Row and taking the artwork that I did with him to Breakaway, and that was oh. that ultimately was my demise at Death Row Records. Oh, but you didn't authorize it, right? No, I didn't. That's... I did. So how? Nate Dog paid me for the artwork after the fact. Oh, but. Once he did that, yeah. it kind of left people's people. It kind of left people to the point to where they started speculating things like, "Oh, did he do this once he left Death Row?" Were never thinking that I could have did that while he was still on Death Row Records. Oh. So it kind of like left people to the thought of Risky's working with people that left Death Row and Shug thought at that time that I was working with the enemy, and I ultimately got fired behind the artwork for G Funk Classics. That's tough. Yeah, it was a real t- it was a real tough situation because I I stayed loyal to a place that had given me that had taken my artwork. I say from that had taken my artwork from from the hood worldwide, and now I was leaving that place for mm-hmm. for miscommunications. Yes, it hurts uh, when you're like very loyal to. <laughs> When you... Yeah, I was I was very loyal to Death Row Records. I was very loyal, and I just look around right now, and I look at all of the unloyal people. They're the ones that's paid. Mm-hmm. They're the ones with millions of dollars, and all of the people that were superiorly loyal. We don't have anything but great memories. But you know what? People with money doesn't mean that they're happy. <laughs> You know, it's yeah, like no, you, definitely. you have your art and you stay true to your art and what you do. I would take that over, you know, not being true to myself. Yeah. You know what I mean? So how did you work through? The, well, you didn't work through it. What was the next step that led you beyond Death Row Records? Wow. I was blackballed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, man. Nobody wanted to hire me because everybody was afraid of Shug, oh. you know, having a problem with them hiring his artists. So nobody wanted to hire me. I was blackballed. I couldn't get another gig in the industry. Dang. Everybody that was leaving Death Row, they didn't want to hire me to do work. Even when Nate Dog, once he the situation happened with him and I ended up losing my gig, he didn't want to give me a job at his label. Dang. You know, it was... It was ultimately, I mean, that was a very, that was a very sad situation for me. Like that had really kind of like had torn me apart to the point of where I felt like once I had left death row and I had went through all of those situations, like I, I didn't know how to be, be an artist anymore. I, I said, I end up getting a regular job and I had given it up because I couldn't, I couldn't get back into what I had, what I was accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And I had, I left it alone for maybe about three or four years. And it wasn't until George Price, who was, who did public relations over Death Row Records, had gotten at me through XXL magazine where they wanted me to do a spread for a story about Tupac in 2003. And I ended up doing that spread. And once I did that spread, I got back into the art and I was like, yo, I'm out here doing all of these jobs that I'm not even comfortable with. Like, I know they're not me. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do them anymore. 
And once I did that spread for XXL Magazine, I started back drawing. And once I started back drawing, I just didn't quit. I just stayed focused, and I started getting gigs to, like, illustrate children's books. I just It was just different things that led back to me getting, like, into the arts. Right. Risky, during that time that you weren't creating anything, I mean, I can't imagine as an artist, you, that's what you did every day. That's your love, your life. You know, that's who you are. How did you manage? I, I said it was hard. I just wasn't doing it. I was doing regular jobs to make money, and that's how I managed. I was just doing regular jobs. It was like, yo, I had this fantastic past, but now I have this horrible future that I'm looking into. What so, What do you think the learning was from that whole experience? You said, what do I think? What was? Your, the learning. What were you supposed to learn from that experience, or what did you learn from that experience? What I learned from that experience was everything that I get, I have to get it on my own so nobody can take it from me. So I started, I, I, what I, I, I incorporated my name, Risky Inc. I started doing artwork for other people, and I would have them pay my business. Mm. And nobody could fire me for my own business. Ah, uh, yeah. Lo- so that, was, that was my big learning lesson is to be able to, like I said, create something that nobody can take away from me. Yeah, because it's you. This is it. Yeah. So do you teach young kids wanting to do what you do? Do you teach them about the business? You know, I haven't did it lately, but a few years ago, I did teach at a couple of elementary schools in L.A. I taught at Horace Mann Elementary. I taught at the YMCA. I taught, um, I can't really, I can't remember the other school that I taught at. It was actually in L.A. It's coming, I can't really remember the name right now, but I would go through a foundation that a friend of mine named Darius had put together called the Yale Found the Yale the Yale Foundation, which is the Young Educated um, Youth League. Yelp. I can't remember the actual word, but we would go out and we would teach stuff like art. They would teach DJing. They would teach beat making. They would teach them how to you know do different clothing and stuff like that. And I would go. I would go out with him to after school programs and teach youngsters how to, you know, draw, give them drawing classes for about an hour, an hour a day, three or four days out the week. Mm-hmm. And now I know we talked about, you know, social media now. Talk about how you take your business on social media and the difference between what folding up that piece of paper, putting it in your back pocket to, to now. I mean, the difference with social media is, like, when we, we I didn't have social media back in the day. Right. So, I mean, we already know that. But, I mean, if I did have social media back in the day, I probably would have thousands and thousands <laughs> of followers because I'm pretty sure I would have been, Pop, can I get you, you know, on my social media? Can I take a picture with you with the album cover? Can I do this? Let me get a snap. Let me get a snap of that. If I had that available to me back in the day, I feel like more people would would have had the opportunity to actually know who I am. Mm-hmm. And I mean, with social media now, it's I mean, so many people they can get in contact with you mm-hmm. so much faster than people, you know, reading, you know, reading about you know the credits in the album cover and wondering how they can get in contact with you. I've had people that have read that have read the albums, they have saw my name and they Googled me and they found me. <laughs> they and the you. first thing that they say to me is, are you really the person that did the Machiavelli album cover? Did you really do Death World's Greatest Hit? Did you really do all of this artwork? 
Mm-hmm. And I'm always like, yeah. And then a lot of people, like a lot of people, they they hit me up, and the first thing they say is, I just saw that interview with you talking about the album cover, and I want you to do some artwork for me. Like I had, before Bankwell Fresh had got killed, you know, last year, I think it was last year sometime, Bankwell Fresh had hit me up and sent me a message and was like, yo, I need you to get back at me. This is involving some money. And I really didn't know, you know, the stature of who he was. Mm. But I had given him a call, and he wanted me to create an album cover for him. It really didn't happen. It didn't, it didn't happen. I don't know if it was because he, you know, he just wasn't ready at the time he got back with me, or it was because, you know, a few months after that, he had ended up getting killed. But it just didn't, it just mm. didn't take off. But, I mean, it's just funny how, you know, social media, you know, puts puts people into play and into contact. Yes, yes. It changes the game. I think it, what, they say it levels the playing field. You know, a lot of people can. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does. Because, I mean, you have the opportunity, even though it's harder, when you get on Twitter, you know, you, you can you can want to talk to any celebrity that you want. And, I mean, you just got to stay persistent to it. Because I have a friend named, named Lethal. He, he does his own, like, artwork and gospel clothing. And, I mean, he gets on Twitter. And I don't know how he does it, but he always gets a celebrity to support him. I mean, it's just about it's just about staying persistent with what you dream, what your dreams are. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you can sit on the couch all day and watch your favorite TV, binge watch your favorite TV shows. Just imagine what you could do if you sit on the couch all day and binge watch on trying to, you know, make your career or your dreams happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> just imagine what you could do. <laughs> well, just imagine what you could do. Yeah. Yeah. And Risky, you also create artwork for skateboards and athletes. And I see uh, Snoop Dogg has a, a skateboard. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, two years ago, me and my friend DJ Too High, we took some of the artwork that I had from some of the album covers. Um, I believe it was from the Unsert from the All Eyes on Me, Death World Greatest Hits, and the Machiavelli album. And we created like a limited edition skateboard. And Too High was fortunate enough to get you know, Snoop to be able to take that, take that photo for me. So, I mean, we have, we've been pushing that. I, you know, I've been pushing like prints of my artwork. I mean, I'm just, I'm all my legendary stuff. I'm like, you know, giving people have the opportunity to, to copy. Right. It's so, it's so beautiful. Your work captures the, those emotions that, you know, I talk about with like Aboriginal art. It, it just captures everything. How do you do that? I just I just create. Like how however I feel at that time or whatever I feel, I just I just put it into my paintings. Yeah. I let I let my emotion slide down my paintbrush or my airbrush at whatever time I'm creating. It's like poetry. Mm-hmm. On a canvas. Yeah, it is. It's beautiful. So let us know how we can Get Art Is My Life, The Streets, Tupac, Death Row Records, and now. I mean, my book is available. You can get my book at Amazon.com. You can get it from BarnesandNoble.com. And last but not least, you can get it from RiskyForever.com. And that's spelled R-I-S-K-I-E-F-O-R-E-V-E-R.com. Every book that comes from my website is signed by me and is sent out to you from me. That's one of the perks of buying it directly from me. Every book that's bought directly from me, I sign it. When you get it from Amazon or you get it from Barnes and Nobles, you're just getting it. But <laughs> I mean, it's it's 
it's personalized when it comes directly from me. And I know we touched on what's next for you in regards to, you know, having an art gallery. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what else is out there for you, Risky Forever? What, what's out there for me right now is, like you just said, I'm looking to try to get me a gallery showing going. I'm out here in New York, you know, making connections, showing people my work, showing people my books. And I want to work on having a showing. I want people to be able to come into a room and be able to see a numerous amount of my paintings on the wall. I'm tired of going to other people's shows, and I'm ready to have my own. And I think it's long overdue. As a matter of fact, it's 20 years overdue. Yeah. And I'm working on that. Oh, good, good. And if any anybody out there wants to, you know, do what you do and... Do you have any tips for young artists that are up and coming as well? My tips are for young artists out there. Stay focused on your dreams. Don't let anybody change you. Stay who you are. And last but not least, remember what you put into the universe is what you will get back. Amen. So if you put positivity into the universe, you'll get positivity back. If you put negativity into the universe, it's coming. Yeah. And I'm thankful I had the opportunity to speak with you, Risky. I'm thankful for the opportunity. Mr. Risky Forever, artist, visionary and icon who is responsible for the most recognizable art in hip hop history and its culture. For more information, please log on to ESPNLA.com. Go to the experience page. I'll see you next week here on the experience. ESPNLA 710. ESPNLA 710.